Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, I invite you to go ahead and turn in your bulletins to page 10, or if you'd like to turn in a Bible to Matthew chapter 2. We'll be looking this morning at a very familiar and traditional text this time of year, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Again, it's printed for you on page 10. It's typically on the screens as well, but as you know, we're dealing with a difficulty with our projector, so thank you for your patience as we look to remedy that. But again, uh, page 10 in your bulletin, or Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It reads, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They departed to their own country by another way. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it remains forever. Amen. If you notice, the text opens, verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Simple, but profound words. And if you think of it, we here today find ourselves actually in a very comparable place. We find ourselves here after Christmas, after the celebration of Christ's birth that day in Bethlehem. We find ourselves in a new year. And so in a way, this text, and particularly those verses, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, are metaphoric for our lives, are metaphoric for where humanity finds itself. 2,000 years after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And as we know, it was that day, or that night rather, in Bethlehem, that glorious night, that changed the course of human history. It changed the world. That God came down to us. God is with us, Emmanuel. God came and took on human flesh to provide for our salvation. 
And so the question then remains, again, 2,000 years later, the question remains, how will you, how will I, how will we respond to this event? What does it mean for you and for me? What does it mean for all of humanity, for all the world? Well, if you keep looking, the text says that wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. The word there, and some of your Bibles may choose to use it instead, the word there literally is magi. Magi. It's a word that we ultimately get the word magic from. Who were the magi? Wise men, yes. Kings, hard to say. Doubtful they were kings. They were basically astrologers. Astrologers. They were these learned and studied men in the courts of an eastern empire. Most scholars believe it's likely the Persian or Babylonian empire from which they travel. That would have been the place in this day that would have that, you know, the most access to that kind of learning would in their courts feature people of that kind of study the most prominently. So we have here three, uh, maybe, maybe more. We have magi coming from the east, astrologers, learned men coming from an eastern distant empire. Again, these would have been men who are most at home in a dusty, dim you know, library, okay, packed to the gills with scrolls. Men who are very comfortable in the tight aisles of a library, keenly attuned to the prophecies, keenly attuned to the learning throughout the known lands, okay? Men of great knowledge, men of great understanding, men of great study, men of great renown who would be able to search the heavens for signs of important events. This, this is, if you will, a, a contrast to those who had previously been told of the birth of Christ, the shepherds, the lowly shepherds, men who are not known to be cultured, not known to be studied and credentialed and degreed back in that day. But the Magi are, again, men of great study. So much so that when they are shown the sign in the heavens that God intended for them to see, they understood immediately what it meant. They searched the heavens, they searched the charts, they searched the prophecies and the scrolls and the oral tradition of knowledge that had been passed down into the court, and they knew immediately what it meant, that a king had been born, his star had arisen in the sky, and not just any king, but specifically the king of the Hebrews, a king of kings, a great ruler whose birth was prophesied. But the question is this, have you ever wondered Have you ever wondered exactly how they came to note that precisely? Yes, they're studied. Yes, they're learned. But how would they know that there was even an expectation of a royal birth in a little kingdom of Israel or a little kingdom of Judah, a little outpost far from Babylon, far from the royal prestige of their courts? How would they know there was hope in Israel for an anointed one to arise. And the answer, of course, is because Israel, as you know, had formerly been enslaved to Babylon. Think back in your Bibles to books like Daniel 
where he and others are in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. They're in the center of power in that day, the center of a distant empire. And as Israel was exiled and taken off to far lands, they took with them their stories. They took with them their, their hopes, their expectations, their prophecies. Some were faithful, as we know, to preserve in writing those things, which we now have in the Scriptures. Some were faithful to share that message of salvation, the message of one to come, a royal birth, a true son of David who would come and set up his kingdom. Some were faithful to share that message even in the midst of exile. So much so that down through the generations, this knowledge remained in Babylon. This knowledge, though it may have been tucked away in a corner, tucked off in a shelf, this knowledge remained in Babylon. It remained in the courts. And though there may have been scholars and wise men who doubted it, the signs that now came were too much to ignore. The signs in the heavens that showed this to actually be true. And so you see, this realization on the part of the Magi who travel to see Jesus and their knowledge, it's a profound reminder and encouragement to us this morning. It's a reminder and it's an encouragement. Well, what's the reminder? The reminder is this, that we too are people who are called to take the message of the world's salvation, the gospel, the the great announcement that Christ, the King, has come. We too are called to take that message wherever we go. Wherever we go. Wherever God puts us, wherever he chooses to, to maybe even remove us and place us somewhere else, that we take the message, we take our hope, our story, the gospel, the good news, we take it with us and we, we share it with any who will listen. If you think of it, we too find ourselves in a, a, a place of exile. No, we haven't been removed from our homelands, thankfully. We haven't, been, you know, we haven't been oppressed by a foreign power, thankfully. But in a sense, we as Christians, the Bible tells us, 1 Peter particularly in the New Testament tells us that we're exiles, that we're aliens or we're strangers living in a world that is not our ultimate home. And I don't know about you, but as, you know, as time goes on, again, a new calendar, turn the page, 2019, as time goes on, the world increasingly feels less and less like our home, does it not? It feels a lot you know, less and less like a place that is hospitable or welcoming to Christians, to the gospel. And so we see it, we feel it. We too are in a place of exile, again, not to the point of Israel and Babylon, but we are in a land, we're in a culture, we're in a place that's hostile to what we believe, that's hostile to what we hold dear. And yet, our job, our calling, is even in the midst of that, to be bold enough, to persevere enough to share the story, to still cling to the good news, cling to the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus, and then to share it with whomever will give us the time of day and listen. It's a profound reminder. But it's also an encouragement. You see, it's a profound encouragement that even in times that appear hopeless and dark, and again, the exile of Israel in the land of Babylon was certainly that, hopeless, dark, It felt like God had abandoned them. 
that God had turned his back. You see, the visit of the Magi many, 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 many years later is a profound encouragement to us if you see it this way. It's a profound encouragement because what does it, what does it tell you? That even in your darkest moments, even in moments of exile, literally or figuratively, even in moments of utter and profound loss, God has not turned his back on you. God has not abandoned you. That God is still indeed Emmanuel, God with us. And that was proven true here for Israel. Because they had failed to be the light to the other nations they were called to be, they were exiled, they were expelled from their land. And yet, in their expulsion from their land, what happened? They actually became the light of the nations they were intended to be. Because now they had to witness. Now they had to go forth and tell of the the God of all creation. And we see that here, again, with the Magi. They took the message with them. And lo and behold, it trickled out into Babylon. And lo and behold, what do we see? that God worked profound good out of their disobedience. He worked profound good out of their darkness. So much so that the message of salvation went out to all the lands. It went to Babylon in particularly. And they now had knowledge of the Savior. And they could then come and visit him when he was born. What a profound encouragement that even when it, it seems like God has left us, God has abandoned us, he hasn't. He's using even upside-down events. He's using even the, the, the negative things that can creep into our lives ultimately for our good, for his glory, for the greater good of the world. God is making all things new. He's setting all things right. What a profound reminder and encouragement to us in these first few verses. But, but as we continue, we also see in this text something else profoundly relevant. We see two postures of humanity. We see two postures that have always been possible to the news that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And again, it's true whether we were there as the original audience or whether we're here in 2019. And the two postures that we see to the news that God has come to be with us are fear and faith. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That news still you know, provokes either fear or faith. We see fear in the person of King Herod. His reaction, if you look in verses 3 and 4, his reaction to the news that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the text says he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. There's a lot being said there in a little verse, that King Herod was troubled and Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem, with him. The Herod being spoken of here is Herod the Great. There's a couple Herods in Scripture, but this is Herod the Great. He was a man who was technically not Jewish. He had been made king, though, of the Judean kingdom, so he was ruler over all Palestine. He was made that by the Roman Empire. He was put in place, if you will, about 35 to 40 years before the birth 
of Christ. And he became known as Herod the Great, not because he was some, you know, uh, some great guy, <laughs> okay? Great example of morality and, you know, integrity, things like that. No, no, he became known as Herod the Great because he was a great builder. He was a great builder. So he greatly beautified the area, the region. He was responsible for building the temple, as you probably know, at the time of Christ. Herod's temple, it was called. He, he built many things in honor of the emperor. He was a great, great builder who became known as Herod the Great. But he was also ruthless. And so Herod was not a great guy, but because he wasn't a great guy and he was up for corruption, he was up for ruthlessness and brutality. A byproduct of that, though, was this under his reign, this region actually had peace. It was actually a quiet time, for the most part, under Herod's reign. But a man like that in power can then provoke this kind of reaction. He was a loose cannon. What would come next? He would, at the slightest hint of insurrection, he would stamp it out with brutality. And so he gets news of a new king in town. A new king has come. And you better believe he was troubled. And you better believe that if he was troubled, so too then were all the people. Because what would this Herod do next? Well, we obviously find out in the next chapter of Matthew, or later in the chapter in Matthew, he does heinous things to try to stamp out this rumor, stamp out this possibility. But it's this reaction on the part of Herod that evidences his fear. His fear. What if the prophecy was true? What if these magi who have come were right? What if indeed a king had been born in the city of David who had a true and rightful claim to David's throne? Something Herod did not. Something Herod could not claim. What would happen to Herod then? Well, we know the story. Herod would lose power. He would lose his royal robes. He would lose his court. He would lose his autonomy. He, in a word, would cease to be king. Now, of course, Herod failed to understand the kingdom of which Christ Jesus brings is not a kingdom that had any interest in borrowing Herod's mantle or borrowing Herod's robe. It was a kingdom not of this world. It was a kingdom with great, much greater and brighter sights set before it than some little empire, a little outpost in the empire. But of course, Herod doesn't realize this, so he's fearful. What will the birth of this king mean? Will it mean I lose my power? Will it mean I lose my authority, my autonomy, my little kingdom? And again, the context is different today than it was then, but is it not possible to have the same reaction to the news that God has come, that God has come down? We hear the Christian message that God created everything, including us. We hear the Christian message that by nature, then, we owe this God our allegiance we hear the Christian message that the God who was the creator also became the redeemer and entered into his creation in the person of Christ Jesus, and it can prompt in us, sometimes, fear. Fear. Why? Because we don't want anybody to be over us. We don't want anybody to be an authority 
over us. We don't want anybody to whom we have to be accountable. We don't want a king. We don't want a God over us. We hear the invitation of God. We hear the news of his arrival, and we view it as a threat. A threat to who we are, a threat to our autonomy, a threat to our personal kingdoms. And we decide to be instead like Adam and Eve, who in the very beginning preferred what? Preferred to be their own gods. Preferred to be their own kings. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, and let's be honest, going into a new year, great time to be honest. If we're honest, what has the chasing of our own personal kingdoms, our own personal name, our own royal throne, what has it ever gotten us? What has it ever gotten us? It gets us small lives, lives that search for meaning, for happiness, for purpose, but never find it. It gives us lives that that run but can never rest. It gives us lives that are always eager to take and to grab and to accumulate, but in the end, still feel empty, still feel void of something, still end up like Herod, building a self-focused kingdom, but then only to see it in the end slip through his fingers, slip through his fingers. No. No, the reaction to the news that God has come shouldn't be fear. Shouldn't be fear. The news that God has come won't shrink our horizons. It won't make our lives smaller. It won't deny our heart's deepest desires. It'll actually provide for it. It'll provide for it. St. Augustine reminds us that our hearts are made for God. And so they're restless, they're perpetually restless until they find their rest in him and him alone. No, the arrival of God won't, won't shrink the horizons of our life. It'll actually provide our deepest desires. Christ, the adult Jesus, we're talking about the Jesus who was born, the adult Jesus will go on to tell us that he has come that we might have life and have it to the full. Have it abundantly. And you see, it's that realization the Magi who came from the East understood. And so instead of responding in fear, they responded appropriately in faith. And so we are called to do the same. If you notice, their reaction, the faithful reaction, is the exact opposite in almost every way as Herod's. Herod hears the news that that Jesus has come, like many do today, and what does he do? He clutches his throne tighter. He becomes more tight-fisted. The Magi, though, on the other hand, hear the news that Jesus, the king, has come, and what do they do? They leave their royal courts. They leave it all behind, and they follow after a truer king, a more satisfying kingdom. Herod hears the news that Christ has come, And what does he do? He dispatches his officials to neutralize the threat. The Magi hear the news that Jesus has come, and they dispatch and dispense their treasures. They lay it all before God, Christ Jesus. In other words, they hear the news that a king has come, the king of kings, and they don't fear losing power or autonomy. They don't fear authority or accountability. 
because they ultimately understand that this king has come to set up a kingdom that is so much more fulfilling, so much more satisfying, so much more glorious than any kingdom that their hands could build, any kingdom that the, the world could offer. And this king has come to give a gift greater than any gift we could receive from anything in this world. It's the gift of our pardon. That we don't have to fear God because he's going to take from us. We don't have to fear God because he's going to judge us in our sin and condemn us. No, we can rejoice in the arrival of God because in the arrival of God, what has he announced? He's come to be for us. He's come to give us full pardon, full forgiveness. He's come to bring peace, as the great song, Joy to the World, says, far as the curse is found. He's come to bring us back to God. And so when they knew that, when the Magi heard that and understood that, they respond in faith. They pick up and they get going. And they lay it all, they lay their best gifts before the throne of this newborn king. Because they understood, they had faith. They understood and, and embodied, if you will, the great quote, uh, the profound quote from Jim Elliott, that great missionary martyr in the 1950s who once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's how the Magi responded, in faith. In faith to follow that Savior. In faith to go find that King. And so as we close, I ask you this, as we enter a new year, as we all together enter 2019, how will we respond to the news that Jesus has been born in Bethlehem? Will we respond in fear? Afraid that, you know, afraid to hand over to God that which is rightfully his, like we've talked about in our confession, that Jesus owns everything? Will we respond in fear and, and, and clutch more tightly to what is ours, to our personal kingdoms? Or will we respond in faith, perhaps for the first time, following after Jesus, seeking him while he may be found, and trading our fleeting kingdoms of this world for the truer and greater kingdom, that of Christ Jesus, the kingdom that Hebrews tells us later cannot be shaken, the kingdom that will last far beyond this earthly life, the kingdom that began that day in Bethlehem to turn back the curse, to set all things right, and continues to do that here and now today in Lake Worth, in 2018, and also as we go together into a new year. That is the kingdom that is ours. That is the gift that God has given. That is what his appearance, epiphany, signaled that great day, that the king has come, and he's come for you and for me, sons and daughters of the king. What a glorious, glorious realization. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that 
you have given so graciously to us. You've given us your son, Jesus. And oh God, the story of his birth, that glorious night in Bethlehem, is a story so familiar that we have a tendency to lose its power. We have a tendency to miss the profound nature of it. And so God, we pray that as we have gone through another Christmas, as we now go into a new year, that we would take with us that glory, that mystery, that unbelievable realization that the God of all the universe came down to be with us. May that fuel our lives. May we not be fueled this year by by a resolution or by, uh, you know, just the the feeling that we have to do more and try harder. But God, may we be fueled by the news that you came down to, to rescue us. You came down to be with us now and forevermore. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.